just on a slightly sobering note, um, I mean, we've, we've seen what's been going on in the news in the last months over in uh, Syria and Iraq. You know, we're seeing these horrible uh, stories and we're hearing the stories of people being kidnapped and then the, the horrible news comes that they were beheaded. And, and the, the tragedy is they, they kind of do this very publicly. They put it on YouTube, this clip of someone being beheaded. Um, I've got two really contrasts, just to get us into the thought, just to get us into the emotion of what these verses we're going to be looking at are about. There's two contrasting stories come from those Islamic State murders that have happened. One is uh, by the, the parents of James Foley, James Foley, uh, the reporter, uh, who was beheaded by Jihadi John. And there was an article that Diane Foley uh, and her husbands, they were interviewed by the Times. Here's a picture of Diane and her husbands uh, behind me. Uh, they were interviewed by the Times, and in that interview, she said this about Jihadi John. She said, it saddens me. His continued hatreds, he felt wronged, and now we all hate him. And that just prolongs the hatreds. We need to end it. She added, as a mum, I forgive him. I cannot imagine feeling how she feels and having the courage to say, as a mum, I forgive unbelievable. That is radical forgiveness, right? In contrasts, and you wouldn't blame this next person because you can understand their pain, but in contrast, you've got David Hames's daughter. David Hames, again, the British uh, aid worker who was captured and again also decapitated. His daughter, Bethany, she took a very different view, and she, speaking to ITV News, said, I think that all the families will feel closure and relief once there's a bullet between Jihadi John's eyes. Now, you get that. You get the emotion, the anger. You get that. You can, you can hardly blame her for that. But that's the contrast right there. In the face of incredible sin, one person shows mercy. Sin that's personally affected them. And then in, in the same face of the same tragedy, another person holds on to judgment. How would you respond? Okay, we're in the book of Jonah. Jonah was called by God to preach to uh, a city called Nineveh. Nineveh was a wicked, wicked city. In fact, it, 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 was, it is based in modern-day Mosul, where currently Islamic State are resident. It's, it's ironic, but it's a very interesting parallel. God called Jonah to preach to Ninevites. Jonah ran the opposite way through a series of circumstances, <laughs> unusual circumstances. God brought him back on track, and now he goes to preach in Nineveh. And this is the, how the people, the people of, of Nineveh hear the message that Jonah brings, a challenging message, and the people of Nineveh turn back to God. Let's pick up the story. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, and then we're going to go into chapter 4. Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he'd threatened. Because God was warning the Ninevites, if you continue in this sin, you're going to be destroyed. And they give them a time scale. But Jonah, seeing that, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. Ever been angry with God? He prayed to the Lord and said, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarsus. I knew that you were a gracious and a compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, right there, we'll look at this in a moment. He's actually quoting directly another part in the Old Testament. We'll come to that in a moment. 
slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. That's serious bitterness. God, you didn't forgive them, so I'd rather die. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? So why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? We're in chapter 4, the last chapter of the book. And all of a sudden, we realize the real reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. And it's, it's, like, a, it's like an amazing novel. It's got that twist at the end. You see, all the way through, you're left thinking, you're left pretty sure that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because the Ninevites were wicked people, and they were seriously wicked. I mean, they were torturous. They, they delighted in causing people great pain, and they were absolutely merciless when it came to their victims. I mean, incredible. Archaeologists have found all sorts of friezes carved in stone showing the brutality of the Assyrian people who were in Nineveh. And yet, Jonah did not want to not go to Nineveh because he was scared of the Ninevites. He wasn't scared of the Ninevites. He didn't want to go because he was being asked to do the impossible. He didn't want to go because he was asked to love the unlovable. He didn't want to not, it wasn't because he was scared of failing. He didn't want to go because he was scared of succeeding. He was scared that if he went and preached, that they would turn and that God wouldn't destroy them. How warped is that? Yesterday, I was doing some stuff uh, around the garden and helped my mother-in-law with a couple of things. And there was a slab that needed to kind of put into concrete again. And I lifted up the slab because I think a tree root pushed it up, so I had to cut away underneath. And as I lifted up the slab and looked underneath, there was all this squiggly stuff. All these kind of squirrely wormies and beetles and stuff you never knew existed, kind of staring right back up at you. And today what we're going to do is we're going to pick up the local church. We're going to look underneath it. And we're, not, we're going to go, yeah. Because what we're doing here is we're looking actually at a very religious man, Jonah, who believed in the true God and yet was carrying deep prejudices and deep issues, which God forbid, but maybe just some of us have allowed to creep into our souls. So, we're going to take four contrasts that I see in these verses. Four contrasts. Contrasts between Jonah and Nineveh. Contrasts between Jonah and God. And we're just going to apply them to our lives. And trust me, I'm applying this just as much to your life as, as I am to my own life. First contrast. Exclusive love versus inclusive love. Verse 2, Jonah says... I knew that you were a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So question, how did Jonah know that God was a compassionate God? Okay, that quote he's getting directly from another part in the Old Testament. Now, there's a quote where God reveals himself as the gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Where would that be? Think about the worst part in the Old Testament. Think about the part in the Old Testament when the, the Israelites had got to rock bottom, when they did the worst of the worst. Think of a moment in Israel's history where their sin against God was such that God would have been justified just to literally wipe them off the face of the earth. It was in the context of that that the verse I'm about to read to you that Jonah's quoting from comes. Exodus 34 Six to seven. It's the bit when, do you remember, they came to Mount Sinai? 
fire of God came on the mountain and stayed there. Moses went up the mountain and was given the Ten Commandments. He took a little bit longer than he should have, and the people turned and started worshipping a golden calf, right? You know that bit. Worshipping a golden calf right beside a mountain that was on fire. You have nutters. I mean, that's utterly dumb. It's, they obviously became so familiar with this. Oh, there's the fire in the mountain. And they started worshipping this false god. Moses comes down the mountain, sees what they're doing, throws down the Ten Commandments, they smash. He prays to God on behalf of the people. And he goes back up the mountain, and God gives him another Ten Commandments. And this is what he gets when he goes back up the mountain the second time. See, God should have just wiped out the people right there. But God says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So it's amazing. This radical love of God that is slow to anger and abounding in love. It's a radical love of God. If you've never experienced the love of God today, may you experience it. It is radical and it is for you. Right? So this, this verse is an amazing verse. Jonah knew this verse. Probably most Israelites knew this verse. This verse was precious because it spoke to them of a God who would love the Jewish people that much that he would forgive their sin. But the question Jonah had wasn't, would God forgive the Jewish people their sin? Sure, God would forgive the worst of the worst sins of God's people, of the Jewish people. But would God forgive the worst of the worst of the worst people who weren't Jews? And Jonah's expectation was this, that this verse applied to Jewish people. God, don't be like that to the Ninevites. Compassion on Israel is one thing, but compassion on the Assyrians, the brutal Assyrians, that was a very different thing. This is exactly the same prejudice that Jesus faced when he walked the earth. In Jesus' ministry, one day a, a, a teacher of the law came to him and he said to Jesus, so what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus gave him the answer. He said, the greatest is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then the, the person questioning Jesus, wishing to justify himself, said to Jesus, okay, and who is my neighbor? Ah, right, now this, this was a trick question because this was a big theological debate going on at that time. Rabbis and theologians among the Jewish people were constantly debating, who is my neighbor? Some, very few, believed that my neighbor would include anyone who is a human being. But the majority of you in Jesus' day, among the rabbis and the Jewish people in which Jesus was living among, the majority of you was this, that my neighbor is my Jewish neighbor. It certainly wouldn't include someone of another race. It was, re it was religious, racist prejudice. And in response, Jesus said, okay, who is my neighbor? Let me tell you. And Jesus tells him the story, the famous story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story. It goes as follows. The, there was a man, he was on the way from Jericho to Jerusalem. As he was there, he fell among robbers. The robbers beat him and left him for dead. And then a Jewish religious person walked by, then another Jewish religion person walked by and just walked past on the other side of the road, not wanting to get involved. Too much trouble. But then along came a Samaritan. Let me read it to you. I haven't got these in the screen. Let me just read it to you. It says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled along, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. 
And he went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured oil and wine on him. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he gave two denarii. Uh, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and I will, when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Which of these three, Jesus asked the religious people, which of these three was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now, Jews absolutely hated Samaritans. So see when Jesus is telling this story to a Jewish group, and the story is about this, okay, along comes the first guy, along comes the second guy, then Jesus says, and along comes a Samaritan. He would have been as well saying, along comes a Taliban pedophile, right? Right there. He would have just, the crowd would have so reacted to what Jesus said. What? A Samaritan? We hate Samaritans. And Jesus, in an incredibly clever way, he didn't talk about how a Jew was loving a Samaritan. You notice that? He talks about how a Samaritan applies this verse, love your neighbor, to a Jew. You see, if, they, if he'd applied a Jew to a Samaritan, they would have all been up in arms. But when he, when he said, this is a Samaritan loving a Jew, applying the same text, it was radical. Jesus exposed the prejudice in his day, just as Jonah's prejudice was exposed. They believed that God, Jonah believed that God's love was only for Jewish people. In Jesus' day, the people of his day believed that loving your neighbor meant only loving the Jewish people. Jonah saw God's love as exclusive. God's love is always, however, inclusive. You see, I mean, God forbid that we would still have these mentalities. And yet, Okay, we love being an international church, right? And I know that because I know many of you said one of the reasons we're here is because you're an international church. And we love it how there's different age groups and races and different uh, social classes. We love that. Yeah, I know we love that. But you only hang out with people like you. When's the last time you went or invited someone to your house from another race to your house for a meal? So I know you like the concept, but it's conceptual. So I, I, I know that you love the idea of being a church where there's different age groups. But when's the last time you went to visit an old person in the church or someone who was sickly in a hospital? I, I know we, we totally love the idea of different social classes, but you just hang out with people from your social class. And if you're wealthy, you never give your money to people from a lower social class. And this is where the mirror comes up. The, the Bible has this way of being a mirror. The book of James describes the Bible as a mirror. And what you see in Jonah's life is he was submitted to the will of God for his life. Okay, God, I'll go to Nineveh. But he wasn't submitted to the will of God for the world. And you can be submitted to the will of God for your life personally. Okay, Lord, guide me. Show, me. show me who I should be with. Show me what I should do. But are you submitted to the will of God for the world? Are you submitted to the will of God for the city? You see, after I became a believer in Jesus, I remember I, I, at that moment when I trusted Jesus, when I was 15 years old and I put my trust in him, I did at that point submit to God's will for my life. I said, okay, my life is yours. But it wasn't Many months after that, I found myself one, one Saturday afternoon with my friend in town, and my friend was caring for, in a, like this good Samaritan, caring for this homeless guy. And I was utterly 
embarrassed to be around him. Didn't want to be with this guy who stank of urine. And I was just being a little snob who was totally disinterested. So here's me. Yes, I've submitted to the will of God for my life. But I hadn't submitted to the will of God for the world. And the radical challenge of God is this. To not only submit to the will of God for your life, but to submit to the will of God for the world. You see, Israel was against anything that wasn't Israel. It was. It was prejudice against them. They were the enemies. But the church, when it comes to the lost, we're not against them. It's just that we're kind of on the fence. What's worse? At least they were black and white. So the Israel were against the lost, and the church are just kind of on the fence with the lost. J.C. Ryle said this, the highest form of selfishness is that of a man who is content to go to heaven alone. And God is calling us not to be on the fence and not to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, at least we're not a prejudice like Jonah. Sure, we're not. We're just in neutral. We're just totally at peace with the idea that those around us who are utterly lost, and that's okay, <laughs> and that's okay. Uh, second contrast to see in these verses is religious pride versus humble faith. You see the Ninevites turning to God with utter humility. But you see the utter pride in the religious man Jonah. Matthew 12, verse 41, Jesus talking about the Ninevites said this, The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But now someone greater than Jonah is here. Which which generation was Jesus speaking to? He was talking about the generation that he was talking to his audience, the Jewish people. He was talking about the Jewish people in his day, the most religious people on planet earth. He was talking about them. And he was saying that the Ninevites, those unreligious, wicked people, who in a moment of humility turned to God, they're going to rise up in judgment and judge you, this religious generation, who are the most religious people on planet Earth, Jesus is saying to his generation. And that's a challenging thought. My question is, why is there more danger, potential danger, for religiously type people when it comes to falling into religious pride? I think it's this. I think it is very religious, and it always has been since the fall of man. Remember the fall of man? Adam and Eve turned against God. The first thing they did was they, they tried to cover their own sin. That's just religion. And from the very word go, that's always how we've done it. We've got this propensity to try and deal with our own sin. And here's the problem we've got. This is the danger for religious people. The danger for religious people is that we do good things. And that in our doing of good things... Somewhere down the line, it subtly becomes about doing good things. And as we do good things, then God will do good things to us. That subtly, somewhere in the, in the middle of it all, we've got this religious propensity to legalism that, that thinks, okay, if I do good things, then God will do me good things. And here's the problem. As soon as you see someone who hasn't done good things and they're experiencing God's utter favor on their lives, you're angry. And that's exactly what was going on with Jonah. And that brings us to another parable of Jesus. Jesus, one day, was hanging out with the sinners and tax collectors of his day and age. 
the Pharisees were criticizing him, saying, how can you hang out with the sinners and the tax collectors? Jesus went and told them a story. He said there was a father, and he had two sons. The younger son decided he didn't want anything to do with the father anymore. He said, give me my money, and he headed off. And he went off, and he lived a wild, crazy life, spending his money on drinking drugs and rock and roll and, uh, and, and all that. I don't think half of those things existed. And in, he spent everything he had and found himself in a place where he had nothing left and he literally ended up feeding pigs to make a bit of money to survive. He, in that moment, he got a wake-up call and thought, what, what am I doing? I need to go back to my father. And he goes back to his father. And what does his father do? Well, in Buddhism, they have an almost identical story. And in Buddhism, the father accepts his son back but makes him work for years to pay off his debt. Honestly, it's an, almost an identical story. Thank God we're not Buddhists. Mm. Jesus said, the father saw him coming at a distance. He ran to him, put a ring on his finger. We're still in covenant. Put a robe on his shoulders. I cover your shame. He put sandals on his feet. You're not going to be a servant. You walk as a son. And he restored him right back into his family. That's God. But the older son, and this is what he says, I'm just, again, I'll just read it to you. The older son became very angry and refused to go in. You see, the father was throwing a party for the younger son, and the older son refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. And he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. He's speaking as a religious person, thinking that somehow their hard work will earn them the favor and acceptance of the father. Slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf and throw a party. You know, this is exactly, and this is the danger for religious people. Because religious people, they do good things and in their doing of good things, it's very subtle, but every so often we can flip into this mentality that we earn and we deserve and the person who does nothing good and gets everything you hoped for, you're jealous and actually could even become angry. And that's wicked. You ever looked at someone else's blessing or their miracle and become jealous? They get the relationship you'd hope for. They have a child. They get that job they've been praying for, but you've been praying harder. They get miraculously healed and they hardly even prayed for it. And yet you've been praying for a long time. And the danger in our religiousness is we stop approaching God on the basis of grace. And that causes us to then judge other people in a wicked way. You know, the parable of the prodigal son ends in a cliffhanger. The parable ends with the, son's, the older son still outside. And we don't know, did he, did he actually come in? We don't know. Jesus left you on a cliffhanger. Because some religious people don't make it. And some do. Some religious people stick in their religiousness and keep approaching God on the basis of their works. Other people realize this is unconditional love of the Father and come to Him on the basis of grace. Third contrast to see in the verses. How are you all doing? It's a great verse, isn't it? Anyway. <laughs> Point three. Angry man versus patient God. Exodus 34. Remember, Jonah was quoting Exodus 34. Let's go back to those verses again. Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. 
The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, and yet he does not leave the guilty go unpunished. Now, you see, the difference between us and God is that we, Jonah certainly, and certainly we, we're fast to anger and slow to love. Whereas God is so not like us. God is slow to anger. If he's angry with you, you will seriously wound him up. It's taken him a long time to get to that point. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in love. It's the opposite of us, right? That's God. It's interesting that Jonah and Naaman, Nahum, sorry, Jonah and Nahum were the two prophets that addressed Nineveh. And both of them quote this verse. Jonah quotes the verse, emphasizing, you're a compassionate and gracious God. And he was really annoyed at that. Nahum, speaking 150 years later, quotes the same verse in Nahum chapter 1, verse 3 of Nahum. And he says, um, you will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. And he quotes the second part of the verse that speaks about God's judgment. And Nahum, the book of Nahum, goes on to talk about God's destruction of Nineveh. And it was a prophecy against Nineveh. It's interesting, 100 years, 150 years after Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, Nineveh had somehow or another fallen back into wickedness, obviously several generations afterwards, and were now judged by God. That's not a contradiction, by the way. The verse says both. The verse says that God both loves and is angry. And he loves and is angry simultaneously. Now, I know you don't want that. And I know what happens is we try and polarize. and we, Some say, oh, no, God's a God of love. And then other hardcore nutters say, oh, no, no, God's a God of anger. And they wear their billboards and shout at you. Right? But the Bible says both. And it says both simultaneously. You see, he's a God of love because that's who he is. He is love. But he's a God of anger. Why? Because he's holy. Totally pure and holy and we're sinners. So, why is he slow to anger and abounding in love? He does get angry, but why is he slow to anger and abounding in love? In the New Testament, it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, speaking about the return of Jesus, which is yet to happen, he says, the Lord is not being slow about his promise, as some think, as some people think. No, he's being patient. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So why is God slow to anger? Because he's holding it back. He's, he's angry, but he's holding it back. Because he's loving you. I love you. I'm mad at your sin. See, he's mad at you, but he's mad about you. And he's holding it back. He's holding that wrath back. He's holding that anger against sin because he's holy. If he ignored sin, he would cease being holy. If he ignored sin, he would cease being just. And at that point, he would cease being God. And if he ceased being God, the entire universe would fall off its axis. He doesn't ignore sin. He's holy. I know that's not convenient, but he's holding it back. He's holding it back, even though he feels it. Why? Because he's abounding in love. 
And God will one day return. Jesus Christ will return. Everyone will see it and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And woe to people who don't know God, who haven't turned from sin. But his desire, he's holding back because he's wanting people to come to know him. Today you might not know God. He's holding back because he loves you and wants you to be saved. Don't even wait another day. Be too scared to give it another day. Turn to God, the God who loves you, and give him your whole life and repent for your sins today. You see, the truth is, the Ninevites turned to God and God had mercy, and that was God's desire. Question, the verse also says, Exodus 34, 7, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. How could God just forgive the sins of the Ninevites? Like, okay, that's okay, forgiven. Brush it under the carpet. I mean, what? How can a just God just forgive sin? Billy Graham told a story one day of, of driving through a small village and he was breaking the speed limit. Can't believe a minister would break the speed limit. And he, he broke the speed limit and a traffic cop pulled him over and, and gave him a fine. And, and he said, you have to appear in court and pay this fine. So he appeared in court and uh, the court proceeding happened. It wasn't a complicated proceeding. Billy Graham stood up and he, and he, he was asked, guilty or not guilty? And he said, I'm guilty. And at that point, the judge recognized who he was. It's famous Billy Graham. It's this amazing, famous preacher. And to be honest, the judge loved Billy Graham. He loved what he was about. And he said, oh, it's Billy Graham. And he, and he said, okay, your penalty is $10, $1 for every mile per hour that you were over the speed limit. And then after sentencing him, he said this, you must pay because you've broken the law. The payment must be made, so but I'm going to pay it for you. And the judge took his own money out and paid for Billy Graham and then said, Anna, now I'd like to take you out for dinner. And he took him out for a steak meal. And Billy Graham said, this is how God treats repentant sinners. They say, I'm guilty. But they don't pay for their own sin. God pays. Then he takes you out for a steak. And I know some of you legalists here, honestly, you're thinking, it's actually not very fair. I agree. I don't think it's fair. I, I don't go to hell. I, I, I agree that. It is not fair. I'm not going to hell. I'm very grateful I'm not. You see, he doesn't let the guilty go unpunished because a punishment had to be paid for the sins that were committed. And it says in Isaiah 53, 5, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. Jesus paid the fine. On that cross when he died, what was taking place then was all your sin that has amassed over the years. Not just the things you've done, but the things you've thought. Not just the things you've done or thought, but the things you ought to have done and didn't do. The times you should have spoken up, but didn't speak up. The sins of omission, not just the sins of commission. All those sins against a holy God are mounting up and the wrath is there. But at one moment for all people, one person died and the full wrath of God was unleashed on the Son of God instead of on me. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Jesus died so you wouldn't need to. He was punished so you could be eternally acquitted. He took your sins so you could become righteous. And you can either accept that or Billy Graham could have said, no, I'll pay it myself. And not believing in Jesus is you saying that to God. Believe in Jesus. Believe in him with all your heart today. 
Trust in him who died and is alive, risen from the dead, and he can be your saviour today. At the end, I'll give you an opportunity to do that. And then the fourth contrast I see here is this. You've got merciless and you've got merciful. Isn't it crazy? Jonah said, I'd rather be dead than see God's mercy come to the Ninevites. Now that is serious warpedness, isn't it? I mean, that is a seriously warped guy. But before you judge him, you haven't walked in his shoes. I don't know what Jonah saw. My guess is that in those days when the Assyrians were doing regular raids into Israel, he would have experienced the brutality firsthand of some of those Ninevite raids. He would have certainly known people whose sons or daughters or whose mothers or fathers or brothers or sisters were maimed or crucified or flayed alive or one of those atrocious things that happens. And he would have been carrying something, folks. So it's really easy to look on and say, how could he? But maybe you've never experienced such a level of pain in your own life. So you think you're being spiritual, but actually it's just because you haven't experienced the same pain. But God speaks to Jonah. We couldn't say this, but God can say this. And he says to Jonah in his, in his moment of unmercilessness, he says, verse 4, Is it right for you to be angry? The key word is you. Of all people, Jonah, is it right for you? You just think about the last few weeks, Jonah. Think about the last few weeks. Think about the mercy I've shown you in the last few weeks, right? I called you. You did the opposite from what I called you to do. You were in the middle of a storm and in a fish, right? I had mercy on you when you were in the worst place in your life. So think about it, Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry? And the answer is a no-brainer. You see, if you've had mercy shown you, how could you not in turn show mercy? Jesus said another parable that links directly to this. Parable of the unforgiving servant. Let me read it to you. Matthew 18. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Say 10,000 bags of gold. Other translations say 10,000 talents was brought to him, and since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him, and he said, be patient with me, he begged, and, he, and I will pay you everything back. The servant's master took pity on him and cancelled the debt and let him go. When the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, say a hundred silver coins. Another translation says 100 denarii. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. And he said, you pay me back everything you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell on his knees and he begged him, be patient with me, he said, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Jesus is showing the total craziness of someone who's been shown mercy but is unwilling to show mercy. And he says the first servant owed a debt of 10,000 bags of gold, or other translations say talents. A talent of gold was 34 kilograms of gold. So 10,000 talents of gold was 340 tons of gold. I don't think I could pay that back. He's talking about an unpayable debt. The guy said, I'll pay you back. That's religion, right? 
What's it represent? It represents the scale of Jonah's sin before a holy God. It actually represents the scale of your sin and my sin before a holy God. It's an unpayable debt. And then you see the other servant who owed a hundred denarii or a hundred silver coins, as this translation says. A hundred denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. So that was the equivalent of a hundred days' wages. Now you could have paid that back. And it represented a human-to-human debt. It represented the debt of the Ninevites, their sins against Jewish people. And they were bad. They weren't nothing. But they certainly weren't the scale of the sin of all people in the sight of God. And Jonah was miffed that Nineveh's sins were forgiven. And yet his own 10,000 talent debt had been cleared. Dr. James Roscup said this, when a man lives without mercy to others in God's world, he simply shows off the fact that he himself has never responded aright to the immeasurable mercy of God. You ever found it hard to forgive someone? You ever found it hard just to let them go free? Not ask for anything back? Let me read you an account from Corrie Ten Boom's story. Corrie survived through the Holocaust in a concentration camp as a Jew. She lost her family. And now at the end of the war, 1947, she's now in Munich. And she's back in Germany, as a Hollander, back in Germany, preaching about God's forgiveness and God's love. And it says this, that at the end of her preaching, a large German man walked towards her. And as he walked towards her, she had a flashback to when she was in the concentration camp. She knew this guy. He was one of the guards. Now, she doesn't know if she recognized her, but she certainly recognized him. And she remembers being forced to strip with all the other women and walk naked in front of these guards to their accommodation. And this is what she said. She writes about how he came up and he came and spoke to her. And he said, you mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. And she suddenly realized that he didn't recognize her, even though she recognized him. By that time, but since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear from your lips as well, Fraulein. And again, his hand came out and he asked, will you forgive me? She said, I could not have been... It could not have been many seconds that we stood there with his hand held out, but it seemed to be hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. Since the end of the war, I had gone home to Holland to work with victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were now able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids, And it was as simple and as horrible as that. Still, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will functions regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus helped me, I prayed silently. I can lift up my hand, but you're going to have to supply the feelings. So woodenly and mechanically, I thrust out my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. A sudden 
current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood into my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I've never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Colossians 3.13 says, Forgiving each other, whatever, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That's mercy. Mercy is God not giving to us what we deserve. Now, grace is a little bit different. Mercy is, not, is God not giving to us what we deserve, but grace is giving to us what we don't deserve. And the grace of God also is offensive to Jonah. And Jesus told another parable about the grace of God. He said it's like a man who went out to get workers. And he said he went out early morning and he got some workers and he said, I'll pay you this much. So they came and worked for him in the vineyard. And then at nine o'clock he went out again and he got some more people. And at 12 o'clock he got some more workers. And then he found some more people at five o'clock. This was like one hour to work. He said, can you come and work for me as well? Only with one hour to work. And then at six o'clock was pay time and all the workers came together and he started with those who had just been working with him for one hour. And it says in Matthew 20 that these who were hired last were paid only one hour and, and, sorry, and worked only one hour. They said, uh, we have made, sorry, the, the people complained that they had, the ones who had worked only one hour were getting paid the same as those who had worked the whole day. And they said this, you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and work of the day. He answered to them, Am I being unfair, friends? Did you not agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Do not have the right to do the same what I want to with my own money, or are you envious because I am generous? This is a strange parable, but it's not a parable about economics. It's a parable about grace. It's different people working different hours and getting different effort, but getting the same pay. Equal pay for unequal work. And that's a picture of grace. Max Lucado in his book describes Jeffrey Daimler. There's a picture of Jeffrey Daimler behind me. He was a convicted killer and a cannibal. Let me read to you what Max Lucado said. He says, What disturbs me most about Jeffrey Daimler was not his acts, though they were disgusting. Daimler was convicted of 17 murders. 11 corpses were found in his apartment. He cut off arms. He ate body parts. My thesaurus has 204 synonyms for vile, but each one fails to describe the man who kept skulls in his refrigerator and hoarded a human heart. He redefined the boundary of brutality. The Milwaukee monster dangled from the lowest rung of human conduct and then dropped. But that's not what troubles me most. Can I tell you what troubles me most about Jeffrey Daimler? It wasn't his trial, as disturbing as it was, with those pictures of him sitting serenely in the court, face frozen, motionless, no sense of remorse, no hint of regret. Remember his steely eyes and his impassive face? But I don't speak of him because of his trial. There's another reason. Can I tell you what really troubles me about Jeffrey Daimler? It wasn't his punishment, though life without parole is hardly an exchange for his actions. How many years would satisfy justice? A lifetime in jail for every life he took? But there's another matter. That's not what troubles me most about Jeffrey Daimler. May I tell you what does? 
his conversion. Months before an inmate murdered him in prison, Jeffrey Daimler became a Christian. He said he repented for his sins. He was deeply sorry for what he did. He put his faith in Jesus. He was baptized and he started his life over and began reading the Bible and attending chapel. Sins washed, souls cleansed, past forgiven. That troubles me. It shouldn't, but it does. Grace for a cannibal. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. The radical message of the Bible is that God gives you what you don't deserve and he withholds from you what you do deserve. That's grace, and that's mercy, and that's God. Who's the person in this book of Jonah, above all people in the book, who needs mercy and grace in his life more than anyone else mentions? The answer is Jonah. You see, the book was about God using a man to show compassion to a city. But I actually think the subplot of the book was about God trying to get an understanding of grace and compassion to a man. You see, God didn't give up on him. Despite his rebellion, to go through the storm, to go through the fish. And then despite him now being so angry that he would be willing to die if God didn't show mercy to them. He continues to show love and mercy and grace to this man. God not only wanted to bring a message of grace to Nineveh, he wanted to bring a message of grace to this prophet, Jonah. Did he get it? Did Jonah get the message? Well, he wrote the book. And he wrote the book, and in the book he shows the wickedness of his heart. And I think in writing the book he's saying, I got the message. And he gives us this message so that we can analyze our souls too. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, Jonah. Thank you for the work that you did in his life. God, thank you for the work you're doing in our lives. Come Holy Spirit just now as we just take a moment to respond to what we've heard. I pray that you'd guide us in our response. Guide us in our thinking. Guide us as we consider what is appropriate for us to say before our Creator in this moment. All right, church, just in His presence, in His presence, I want you all just to take a moment to respond. Just while the band play, take a moment to pray back your own response to God. It might be today that you've been carrying prejudice. Maybe today you're carrying unforgiveness towards a person. It might be today that just the idea of someone getting off scot-free really offends you because you've been someone who's trying to earn it. Take a moment to respond to God's grace and God's mercy. Your response might simply be, thank you, God. And then say it to him many times from the bottom of your heart. And maybe today your response is, I need to put my trust in Jesus. He took my punishment for me. I need this grace that's available to me. 
So take a moment to respond to God. While people are praying, I want to give you a specific opportunity today if you've never put your trust in Jesus to be your saviour. I've described to you how he died on the cross. In that moment, he paid your fine eternally. One man for all people. And this was not just an ordinary man. This was none other than God himself in the flesh, dying in your place. What incredible, radical love God has for you. And you never knew it. Yeah, he loves you. He's alive right now. Jesus rose from the dead and he's here by his spirit. If you're here today and you're saying, Peter, today I want to trust in Jesus to be my savior, then I invite you to pray this very simple prayer with me just now. One line at a time, just under your breath. Repeat this after me. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your great love for me. Jesus, thank you. You love me so much. You were willing to die in my place. You shed your blood to take away my sin. You took the punishment I deserve. And today I fully embrace that moment and I accept that. And I put my trust in you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. I turn today from my sins and I choose today to follow you. Thank you, Lord, that you rose from the dead and you're alive right now come and take center stage in my life. Be Lord of my life from this day forward. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for accepting me as your child.